Good morning, y'all. As uh, Matt's already said, we're celebrating Awana Sunday. We're celebrating all the great things the Lord has done in our uh, the children and the youth so far this year. So that's why it's a little different up here, and I'm using the old music stand special. I don't have my big the big rock up here to hang on to. Um, last time I stood up here, last time I preached was actually before Poplar had called me as pastor. So this is uh, it's great to be here on the other side of that. It's uh, it's a joy. So thank you guys. It's been it's been a great um, almost two months of serving you guys and get to know you. So um, love y'all. Um, this morning, if, if you'll uh, if you'll remember when I preached, then we were in Ephesians two, and I shared a little bit of my testimony. Um, and we looked at Ephesians two verses one through ten, um, which I wanted to summarize for us this morning just a little bit. Just to help us get the gist, because today we're going to be in Ephesians uh, 2 also, but we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, that's fine. <clears throat> in, uh, in Ephesians 2, last time we talked, we, we heard from Paul, and uh, Paul's going through this great uh, a dissertation of the gospel. He's just rehearsing it with us, um, and uh, he tells us that we are, we're dead in our sins, that um, and in our trespasses that we have uh, that we're completely dead. We have no hope. And then um, in verses uh, four and five, I'll read them for you. He says, "But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And this is really Paul's uh, Paul's thesis for for this section of of Ephesians two. While we were still got dead, God came to us, and uh, Paul introduces the, uh, the idea of being saved by grace, that it's by Jesus' work, not our own, that we have forgiveness for sins, and, but not only that, we, we have more than forgiveness in Jesus. We have righteousness. We have Christ's perfection given to us. Paul tells us that God did all of this for one reason— he says it's, it's because of his immeasurable grace. It's his, his glory, his kindness. It's because of God's character that he would do this, not because of anything we've done. See, God gets all the glory because he, we haven't done anything to deserve or merit this. It's just God's goodness that would cause him to take on flesh, to live a perfect life on behalf of his people, and then die for their sake at their hands. It's for his Gracious goodness that he does this. So we are just the enamored recipients uh, of his impossible goodness. And in verse 10, as he's wrapping up, he says this. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul is transitioning at the end, he's, and he's transitioning to the text that we're going to look at today um, which I want to I want to read uh, I want to read with you. Um, so if you guys are there, you can follow along with me. We'll be in verse starting in verse eleven through twenty-two. It says therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But God, but now in Christ Jesus, who once, you who once were far off, have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful for your word, how it instructs us. God, that it is incisive that it knows us and sees our need god that you instruct us through the power of your spirit god that you impress the truths of your word upon our hearts and we pray lord that you would answer that prayer of ours this morning god that you would soften our hearts and let us hear your word that you would let us see what christ has done on the cross has brought us into community that it has brought down dividing walls of ethnicity and and culture, and even language. God, because the ultimate need of of every human is grace and forgiveness of sins, and Jesus accomplishes that on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision for what it means to be obedient to this and to be accountable to this. God, would you help us hear your word this morning? Lord, would you help me to share a faithful word uh, from your word? God, that you would uh, protect my lips and, and keep any untruths from my mouth. God, that you would um, help me to honor you as, as I speak this morning. And Lord, um, we're thankful for you. We thankful, we're thankful that you're meeting with us. We know that you are here because you have promised to be so. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in our text this morning, uh, we're going to look a little bit at some rivalries. So I was thinking about rivalries, and that's a, that's a pretty common thing. I think when we think of rivalries, the first thing that comes to my mind is sports rivalries. I think that's the most common thing in our, in our sports-driven culture. Um, everybody kind of has a sports team, right? It could be like a professional team or a school team. Um, NC, North Carolina, is home to some pretty famous rivalries. Just, you know, a couple schools to the, to the west of here. We're not going to mention any names. Um, <laughs> um, I think of... Uh, when, when I first met Matt, it was uh, obviously he's an LSU guy, right? He has the big letters on the back of his truck. So he's one of the people that you can get really riled up if you say some really kind things about Alabama. So he's already, his skin's cringing over here as we talk about it now. He's like, get it out of here. The point being that um, it could be, these rivalries exist because there, it could be just a long history of animosity or even like a a particularly devastating defeat, like just one time, like 40 years ago, that's all it takes for sports fans, right? And now we, we hate that team. Uh, but people will get riled up over, over their teams and, and talking about them or someone talking a little bit of smack about them at, uh, at the drop of a hat. And this morning, Paul is going to talk about a rivalry. And as we read in our text, we see that the rivalry, rivalry between uh, the, the Jews 
and the Gentiles. And the Bible actually records generations of this conflict uh, between Israel and Gentiles. And, and what Paul means there by Gentiles is, is non-Jews. Anybody outside of, of ethnic, religious, geographical Israel. But what Paul is describing actually goes well beyond a rivalry. A rivalry is just a, a way to think about it. But what, what Paul is describing this morning goes far beyond that. And we, we can just look at history and see that, that Israel fought war after war with the surrounding nations. So we think of even uh, the, the larger nations, the invading nations that came in. We have like the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians. And they invaded Israel. They destroyed cities. And they took huge numbers of people hostage. And they were in, in bondage and slavery for generations. And then they would come back and it would happen all over again. And in Jesus' context, the same thing is going on. There's, there's an overlord, uh, and it's the Romans. And just to talk a little bit about the Romans for a second, historically, uh, the Romans were, they despised non-Greek-speaking people. They, uh, they called them barbarians, and, and you hear Paul reference that in, in, in his letters sometimes, talking about barbarians, um, which the, the etymology of that word is kind of interesting. Uh, we, we have a context, and we, we use the word barbarian, but we kind of think of someone who's uncouth, uncultured, who's just, just rude, just doesn't know how to behave themselves in public even is kind of a, a, a nice way of saying it. But where that comes from is, is when, when the Greeks would hear other languages talk, they, they thought it sounded just like bar, 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 bar. And so they, they have the word barbarians. It's pretty derogatory when you, when you break it down like that. The Jews, though, they had um, long looked down on outsiders, especially their, their Gentile overlords, in this case the Romans. One commentator notes, notes something that I found interesting. It's, uh, it says the Jews had a saying. They would say that the Gentiles only exist to fuel the fires of hell. That's a pretty low view of somebody. In fact, they even made a law uh, that prevented anyone from, uh, any Jew from helping a Gentile woman give birth because it would be, uh, only bring one more heathen into the world. So you can see that there's a lot of animosity between Israel and, and the Gentiles. And, and that's what Paul is highlighting here for us this morning. Um, he's showing us the distance and division between Jew and Gentile w- would appear to be irreconcilable, that there's, there's no way. Of all the people that could work out their differences and just get along, hey, buddy, Jews and Gentiles, not going to happen. But, uh, the, so the reason that the Jews thought this way um, was that they were, they were special, right? We, we read that in the scriptures. So the reason the Jews thought this way was that throughout history, the Jews had had something that the Gentiles did not. They had a covenant with God. They had scriptures. They had specific knowledge of God and his character. And they had a place in his kingdom. And what, the, what did the Gentiles have? Well, they had nothing like that. And if they did have anything like that, they had made it up. It was a, a false god, an idol. Paul uses the word, and we're going to dive into this word, he uses the word alienated. The Gentiles were alienated from God. And that's where Paul begins our text this morning. So let's read 11 and 12 together. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's expressing a difficult truth here. That the Gentile separation from from God's people and God himself, it was total and it was complete. So it's it's a couple of ways. It's it's physical in the sense that the Gentiles are separated from from Israel and from God because, and and Paul says, there were Gentiles in the flesh. What Paul means there is that these folks, they were not ethnically Jews. They had not been born into the right family. They, they look different. And then also Paul, Paul talks about circumcision. He says that you don't bear the, the defining mark that the, all the men of Israel bear, which is, which is circumcision. There's also there's geographical separation that only those dwelling within the land of Israel can, can be a part of the promise. There's a geographical part of, of being in fellowship with God. And then religiously they are separated. See, Paul says um, at that time, He says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. To the Gentiles, they had had gods and idols. This isn't to say that that they didn't worship things, that they weren't pagans, they weren't idolaters, because they were. But their gods were fake. They don't have anything real. Their gods are, as as Paul says in uh, in, um, Acts, they're they're just wood and stone. They have no Messiah. They have no Christ. They have no one coming to save them. And on top of that, they have no covenant. That's what what Paul says. You're you're strangers to the covenant. So Israel has this rich history to reflect on as a testimony of God's faithfulness. And and we'll talk about this too, but but we we have that. So we understand. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you have that rich history to look back on and to say, that's right, the Lord got me through that. The Gentiles don't have that because they don't know God, and God has not revealed himself to them as specifically as he had the Jews. So the Jews, their forefathers, they walked with God. They can look back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and they can trace the lineage that they have in the Lord. And because of all this, what Paul is saying is that, he says, without God, he says, he says you're having no hope, and without God in the world, the Gentiles have no citizenship in God's kingdom. They have no hope. They have no future. He calls them alienated. And, and the word that he uses there uh, is, is aliens. He calls them like illegal aliens. And so this is a, a common political issue here to, to understand. We, we understand perfectly what Paul is saying because we understand what it means to, to not have a citizenship where we are living. So we're, we're a part of this, but but there's no, we're not, we're not a real part of anything because we're just aliens. We're just kind of here, but we don't have a people. We don't have a future. We don't have a God. That's what Paul is saying to the Gentiles. And the tricky part here is, I think at this point it's helpful for us to ask the question, who is Paul writing to? Who is his audience here in, the Ephesians, in Ephesians? Because the answer is Gentiles. So, the church in Ephesus was, was mostly non-Jewish believers. So Paul had the, the, their attention, right? He said these, some pretty degrading, difficult things about the Gentiles. And if they were anybody sensitive listening to this letter being read, they're thinking, okay, Paul, what, what's the deal here, man? You know, like, get to the good news. So, but Paul, that's, that's exactly what it is. Paul is not, his goal is not to tear down here. It's, it's just the opposite. What Paul 
is sharing is not bad news. What he has said about the Gentiles' separation from the promises of God is not bad. To the contrary, the complete and utter lostness and hostility to the Gentiles is what makes the turn in verse 13, our next, our next verse. It's what makes it so beautiful. Let's read verse 13 together. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Folks, that is, that is good news. That is the good news that we need today. That now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near. So it's precisely the degree of the separation that the Gentiles experience that makes the gospel of Jesus so beautiful. There's a the great chasm that separates man and God has been bridged, and his name is Jesus. So we, Gentiles, let's not lose sight of that either. We're as we listen to this, are Gentiles. We were once far off. But also, so as Gentiles, the Gentiles are far off, but Israel, Israel is near. That's kind of the association Paul is saying. If, if the Gentiles were once far off, then the Jews must have been near. I think a better way to say it is the Jews were nearer to God because they had the history, the covenant, and the scriptures. Because what Christ has done is, we say nearer, because what Christ has done is he's taken the far, the Gentile, and the near, the Jew, and he has done something amazing. He's brought them not into just the courtyard, if you think of, if you think of the Lord in terms of, of a king. He's not just brought them into the courtyard of the king, and not just into the throne room of the king, but he has brought both parties, the far and the near, and he has brought them closer than anyone thought possible. Jesus has brought both Jew and Gentile into the arms of the king where the king embraces the redeemed in Christ as sons and as daughters. We have adoption to our heavenly father through Jesus. And that is good news. That's what that, that we today, that we can have more than the hope of Israel. And that's what Paul is setting us up for to see that, that the hope that Israel had, the closeness that Israel had, First of all, it was squandered, but second of all, it's nothing compared to the closeness that we have in the Lord through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the new covenant. It's the ultimate truth of what Jesus has done in reconciling man to God. But Jesus hasn't just reconciled man to God. There's there's implications beyond that, beyond just the gospel, the individual's relationship to the Lord. Christ has made that possible. But he's also done something else, and so we're going to look at that in the, the coming verses. Because Jesus has reconciled mankind to one another in the process. Let's continue reading. Let's read in, in verse 14. After he says, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in, the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting language, the dividing wall of hostility. So you think of there's Gentiles, and then there's a wall, and then there's Jews, and then there's God. 
That's the old way. Now, Paul's language here about a wall, it's, it, this is, a, is an assumption, but knowing that Paul is, was, a, was a good Jew, he, he would know, he would have this, this picture in his mind that in the temple there were, there were several courtyards. So they had like the big main temple area, and then, and then inside of that there's, there's a courtyard, and that's the courtyard where anybody can hang out, the, the courtyard of the Gentiles. But then just beyond that, as you get into the main temple itself, there's, there's a wall. Now, this wall, um, the Gentiles were not permitted to cross it on pain of death, and archaeologists have actually dug up signs from, from throughout history as they've done archaeological excavations in, in Jerusalem near the temple that, that are, are warnings to Jews, and, and I mean to, to Gentiles in, in several languages, um, Greek and other languages of the time, saying, Basically, do not cross this barrier, because if you do, you have sentenced yourself to death. And so Paul is picturing that wall, the, the very literal dividing wall between Gentiles and Jews in the courtyard, and he's using that imagery to say that is what Jesus has destroyed by his death on the cross, his, his reconciling of, of God to man and, and, uh, God and man to himself. He has taken down the dividing wall, and, he, and he's done so, we can think of it vertically to God, and he's also removed the dividing wall horizontally between man and his relationships. But Jesus hasn't done this by simply making two people, two different people magically get along. I don't want us to have that image in our minds that somehow God is taking Gentiles now and Jews, and he's just somehow erasing the history and the hostility, and he's just going to make these people like each other, like, hey, buddy, don't worry about that stuff, no big deal. Don't worry about all the years of war and hatred and the terrible mean things you said all those centuries. Don't worry about that. No, Jesus has removed the wall, and this is what we're, we're going to look at here. Jesus has removed the wall by creating one entirely new people, united by sacrificing his own body. We have to ask the question, but how? Well, Paul tells us. Verse 15. He's done this, starting in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Jesus says this. You know, a man is, is not at war within himself. You're not going to hate yourself and love yourself. You're going to take care of yourself. And so as, as one, they are one people. He removes the dividing wall because now we have something greater in common. We ask how Jesus is able to accomplish this knitting of the two people into one new people by his body. It's by that, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Let's dive into that for a second. So the Jewish ceremonial law was very rigorous. If any of you have spent time reading Leviticus and Numbers, you know exactly what I mean. It's some dense reading. The priests had to perform the sacrifices at just the right way and just the right time, and they did all that to temporarily uh, atone for the sins of the people. And not only did they have to do that, but they also have to remain undefiled. All these, they have all these cleanliness rules. They can't co contact unclean animals or unclean people, like the Gentiles, or they were disqualified from serving. So the Gentiles were prohibited. You can imagine a culture where that's the case, where the majority of the people in this one culture don't even want to talk to you 
especially touch you, not have you in their house because you're unclean. So the Gentiles were prohibited from approaching God or even being a part of the Jewish community because they were considered unclean. You can imagine it's hard to, to make cultural inroads with someone you, you can't touch or eat the same food with or go into their house. Jesus removes this barrier by, and here it is, fulfilling the need for the law by his own perfect obedience to the law. So the issues that exist because of the ceremonial law and the, and the, the hostility that would exist between Jews and Gentiles disappears because the ceremonial law is fulfilled. Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's no good, disregard that. He takes care of it in his flesh. See, in, in this way, Christ is the ultimate reconciler. See, the sins of the people of Israel were once atoned, were, were once atoned for by the blood of bulls and goats. That's how they received forgiveness, temporarily. They were atoned for by the blood of animals. But no more, Christ is the, is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, so that all who call on the name of Jesus might be saved. I think it's worth, worth going to Hebrews here. You, you can just, I'll read it to you. Just, just listen along. This is Hebrews 9, verse, starting in verse 24. Paul says, For Christ has entered into the holy places, not into the holy places made with hands, which is the temple, which are copies of true things. He has entered into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, the blood of animals. For then we would have we would ha- he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's Christ's fulfillment of the law. And with sin and the law put away, what is left to divide Jew from Gentile? Nothing. See, the, the purpose of Israel has been served, and now all the nations are, are going to be blessed through Israel, by Jesus. This is God's covenant coming true. It's, it's what has been foretold for thousands of years. And that's where, where Paul takes us next in the text. Let's read verses 17 and 18. And he came, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now this is where I think there's some, there's some pretty distinct application for us. I think there's two applications for verse 17 for us to consider. See, this preaching of peace Paul is talking about, that Jesus is doing, this, this peace preaching, it seems to be saying that Christ preached peace during his earthly ministry to both Jew and Gentile, which is true. Jesus did that. And that, he, that in himself they both would find peace with God through faith in his sacrifice. That was Jesus' ministry. I'm the bread of life. And this certainly is true. Jesus did do this. But I think there's one more application that we can dig into here. And uh, uh, several commentators brought this out as well. That the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection 
it remains a testimony today through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel by his followers. Let's, let's read that verse one more time. It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Paul is writing to Ephesians, people who have never met Jesus, never seen him bodily. He says, he came to you. So I think the implication here, what Paul is saying, is that Christ was not just a testimony in his own teaching, but he is a a continual testimony today. And that testimony is proclaimed by his followers. The proclamation is predicated on his followers actually proclaiming the message, though. So I think this is a main challenge for us today as we dive into this. We need to ask ourselves, are we proclaiming this gospel to our community? Are we preaching the peace of Christ to the far off? As I'm reading this, I'm challenged. Because I think, I think it's one thing also to preach the word of Christ, to tell people the gospel truths. That is key. Without that knowledge, people cannot repent and believe. But I think there's another application of the word preaching or proclaiming the gospel. It's by how we live, by how we treat the far off. The theme of today and we'll get into this in just a few verses, is that we are outsiders. Those who are in Christ were once outsiders, but we have been welcomed in. So in what ways are we proclaiming the goodness of Jesus, not just through our words, but but through our deeds, through the way we love the outsider that we once were? We put ourselves in the shoes of those, the, the unfortunate See, church, you are, you are a steward of the greatest story ever told, and it will literally give life to the lost. We cannot hold it hostage. I think of, uh, we went to a conference in Nashville recently, and, and the theme was Malaysia. We've been praying for Malaysia regularly in, in the mornings. I don't know if you picked up on that. But the theme was Malaysia and, and the, the need for the gospel there, an incredible need. I think there's something like a like a hundred Christians to um, 17 million Muslims, which the math on that is it's like point zero 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 five percent Christian. But they, this a video that we saw over we there it showed Malay believers. They just asked them just to pray for us believers here in the states. I don't I don't think they prompted them either. Uh, but but what they prayed for. They, they prayed for um, that we would know Jesus, that we would love Jesus. But the thing that struck me about what they prayed was that they prayed that we would not waste our freedom, our ability to openly proclaim the gospel of Jesus without fear of persecution. Because in Malaysia, if you are a Malay, it is illegal to be a Christian. You, you are by law required to be Muslim. And so I think of the, the pastor who we were told about that was there, his, his name is um, Raymond Coe, who was, um, he was abducted in, in February of last year. He just, three SUVs, just drove his, pushed his car off the road, they came and pulled him out. He disappeared, hasn't been seen since. That's what happens when you proclaim the gospel in Malaysia. And what they're praying for us 
believers in the states is that we would take advantage of what we can do here. We can stand here on a Sunday morning, we can sing songs to Jesus, and we can hear preaching, and we can proclaim the word of God openly without fear. They were praying for us in the USA to use our freedom boldly. And I think to myself, I shared this in, in growth group a few weeks ago, I said, I, I hear that story, and then I think of myself getting nervous sharing the gospel with the checkout lady at Food Lion. Like, that's, that's incompatible. There is, there's, I have nothing to lose there. The worst thing that could happen to me is someone shrugs off my comments, and I don't need that. That's the worst thing that could happen. And yet, I, I get frozen by fear. There's no one that's going to come after I tell the gospel to the cashier and drive my car into the ditch and come and pull me out and disappear me into the, the wilderness. I don't have to worry about that. Yet I'm frozen by fear, and, and, it, and it, it just shows my value of the gospel and my belief that it will change people's lives is not, is not what it should be. Let's read verses 19 through 22 as we wrap up. Starting in verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the first half of Ephesians that I reviewed for you this morning, in the first half of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul spells out for us just a remarkable truth. That though we were dead in our sins, Christ has made us alive and more than just a resuscitation, like, okay, you get to start over, he pours his grace upon us that we would walk in obedience in his new workmanship. And, but I think there's a correlation between the first half of Ephesians 2 and the second half. You see, when you look at verses 1 through 10, um, and then verses 11 through 22, there, there's some parallels. In, in 1 through 10, Paul teaches that in Christ, that we are no longer dead, but alive. That we no longer seek our own righteousness, but we have been given Jesus' righteousness. We no longer walk in disobedience, but in the good works prepared for us. These, these complete reversals, they are good news for each of us. And they're good individually to us, not just corporately, but as individuals. This is good news. So when Paul gets to 11 through 22... He expands his language so that we see who we are, not just as individuals, we've, what we've been saved to as individuals, which is good works and obedience, but we've been saved into something else, which is a body, a church. See, in 11 through 22, Paul teaches us first, he says, we are no longer aliens, but citizens. So we've gone from being illegal aliens to citizens of God's kingdom. When Paul uses the word citizens here, too, let, let's evaluate this. The Greek here word has a, it has a subtle meaning, and I, and I want us to be careful not to, 
to spoil it with our modern understanding of citizenship. I think as a, as a, a part of a large nation, we, like, we don't really think about our citizenship much for the most part if you're an American citizen. I think if you're like, working towards that or maybe you weren't a citizen at some point, that might be a little bit more something you think about. I don't think about my citizenship for the most part. That's, that's not the case here. The word that Paul uses is, is much more intimate than the way we think about citizenship. In our global world, our citizenship is kind of a little consequence. You know, I've got my passport, get on the plane, go where I want to go, come back, whatever. It's just paperwork. We probably think of like taxes and stuff. But Paul here, by the word citizen, he means like hometown friends and family. Like you're, you're a part of the group, the body. You're a part of something. It's not something that you can buy your way into or paperwork your way into. It's something that you're given usually by being born. And in this case, for the Gentiles it's, and, and Jews both, it's being born again. We are members of God's family. If you are in Christ, you are a member of God's family. He has adopted you into his household. And second, Paul says we are no longer nobodies. But we have a history. So the citizenship that, that Christ purchases for us comes with an incredible story. It's an incredible story that begins with God hovering, his spirit hovering over the face of the deep and creating all things by the power of his word. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Moses. That is that is the story that we inherit. It becomes our story too. So in Christ, we now have a common foundation. Paul says, Christ being the cornerstone. I think of like when little kids, I don't know if you guys sang this song when you were little, um, and, and I didn't. I didn't become a believer until, I was, until later in life. But I, uh, when I became a believer, I remember the first, one of the first Sundays I went to this church. It was a, it was a small little country church, and they, they brought in some young kids, and they sang a song. One of the songs I remember was Father Abraham. Do you guys know that song? Father Abraham has many songs. It's a weird song. But, it, but it's true. And it, I think it's weird because it gets stuck in your head. Right? It's all you can think. Because now, for the rest of the day, you're going to be humming Father Abraham. So You're welcome. It's true, though. Like, Father Abraham has many sons, and I'm one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. It's simple. But it's true. That's the legacy that we, we inherit. So we're no longer nobodies, but we have a history. Third, we are no longer nomads, but we have a home. Paul calls us members of the household of God. Where as once we had, we had no home because we were spiritually separated from God, Christ has gone, and this is Jesus' language, to prepare a place for us. I think this, this, the, the application for our souls here is that our, this is not our home, folks. If you are in Christ, this is not our home. Just as Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, neither is our true home. This means that we should be uncomfortable here away from our home. And it means that you should be homesick. If you're not looking forward to the Lord's return, then you have a poor view of heaven and what it will be like. Finally, Paul tells us that we are no longer friendless, but we are a family. As followers of Christ, we are not a part of this faith as individuals. This is not an individual thing. We don't just show up just for ourselves and then leave. We do this 
as a body. Obedience to Jesus does not happen outside of the local body of Christ, the church. What we do here on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday evenings with Awana, that's important. That's commanded. It's a part of how we survive in the waiting period until Jesus comes back to make all things new. God has given it to us as a grace and a gift. In verse 22, Paul is not saying that you, Paul is, is not saying you individually are becoming a dwelling place for God. Let's, let's just read verse 22 really quickly. He says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That you there is not you individually. It's you plural. It says, yes, the Holy Spirit indwells each of us individually, and that's what unites us and, and works our salvation out in the context of community as we sharpen one another with the Word and with prayer. He's saying, Paul is saying that, that Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is knitting us corporately together as one unified dwelling place for God. Think of us as, and Peter uses this language in his letters, each of us has stones. Paul's picturing the temple here. There's these huge stones that make up the temple. Each of those being the people of God. And, and God not dwelling in a, in a temple made with human hands, but made with his hand. Because we are his new creation. And he builds us into a temple. And he dwells with us, among us. So I think if we take stock of these four principles, you'll, you'll see that they represent the theme this morning, a new identity. If you got, think of this, if you got a new citizenship, a new backstory, like a new history, as we said, you got a new home and a new future, like a new plan, a new trajectory for your life, brother, you are a new person. That is not the old you. And that is exactly what Paul is communicating to us in this text, that as Gentiles, as those who were formerly outsiders, our identity is outsiders who have been welcomed in. That is good news. But it has implications for us. And I think he, he means this in two ways, to shape us in two ways. First, as an encouragement to know that we have been saved into a community that has both history and future that God has planned and will see through to the end. I think he means it secondly, and I want to camp on this for a second. He means it as an exhortation that we are to welcome in outsiders as we once were. I think our understanding of this concept of welcoming in outsiders, that could be outsiders to the faith, outsiders to the community. I think, I think our understanding of this concept is reflected in who we spend our time with which I don't know if, if that's something that you think about a lot. Like, who am I spending my time with? What are they all about? You spend your time with church folks, with family, maybe that's it. Trip to the grocery store, Lowe's, that's the only contact you have with the outside world. What about lost people? Are you spending time with lost people? Also, how much time do you spend with people who are truly outsiders in our community? I'm thinking the poor, the sick, people who struggle with addiction, I think of our, our work at, at the Broad Center. We have teams of people that go there monthly. And the folks that they work with, those are outsiders. They need the gospel and they need love. They need not just the words of the gospel, but the hands of the gospel. Are you, are you being with the poor, the sick, those who struggle with addiction, or do you just like to be around nice, clean people? And one final one that, that I'm wrestling with personally 
What about people outside my own race and ethnic background? What, what kind of time are you spending, and I'm asking this question of myself, what kind of time am I spending with people who don't look and talk like me? We have to answer these questions, church. The, the scriptures are clear that Jesus has welcomed all people, that he has broken down. He's, he's reversed what we see in Genesis 11 in Babel, where, where God scatters the people. He makes them so that they, they, they can't work together to overcome. Christ has reversed that. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. The good news goes to the nation plural. Not just people who look like us and speak our language. Christ has broken down the dividing walls. And if he can reconcile Jew and Gentile, as we've discussed today, in that checkered past, can he not also restore us to our black and brown brothers and sisters? I'm just talking about people within the church. Ask yourself those questions. Let the Holy Spirit Wrestle that among you. The good news today, though, church, is that Christ has made peace for us, and he has made peace with God for his people by his own blood. And that is a sure thing. God has done what we could not do. He did it himself by his own blood. So our salvation is secure in him and him alone. We who were once far have been brought near. The hopeless have received hope. And I pray for us that we believe this truth and live it out with one another, with our community, by God's grace. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word, for its instructive powers. God, that it challenges us, that it challenges our worldview. God, that it does not encourage us to stay within a safe community of people that we know that look like us and sound like us, but God, that you have reached down from the highest place. You have brought in the outsider. God, you have made whole those who are broken. You have given hope to those who had no hope, not even knowledge of you, but no way to get to you, God, no knowledge of you. You have made yourself known to us. God, we pray that that understanding would impact us, God, that, that it would change us, that it would make us goers and doers and movers, God, that we would go into the community that we live in, in Bonn and Zebulun, Raleigh, God, that that would be our heart, heart for the broken, heart for the outsider, because that's what you have done, God. You are the reconciler. You have demonstrated it for us, God, in Christ, in the flesh. You have shown us your heart for the lowly of state. God, we pray that we wouldn't isolate ourselves in, in high towers and talk about, think about how good we are and how clean we are. God, don't let us be like the Pharisees. Let us be like Christ, God. Change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.